We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, your brothers and sisters in Christ, on this wonderful Sunday. Uh, Happy to see all of you today. We're going to talk a little bit uh, about that concept of humility. And I'm going to tell you right off the bat, it's not necessarily an easy concept to talk through. Uh, In fact, I think even in the secular world around us, uh, they have have come to understand that. Um, In the last, I'd say, 10, 15 years, there's been kind of a a renewed study of the attitude of humility. But it's hard to get a handle on, isn't it? When you apply for a job, when you interact at work, how much do they measure your humility? Do they at all, (laughs) right? Or um, maybe the opposite is expected of you right? Application for a job or in the secular workplace, that concept of humility is actually supposed to be kind of dampened and put down and we ought to promote ourselves. And so it's an interesting study of it because it's kind of hard to get a handle on. And yet, when you find somebody that is humble, whether that's in church, in the workplace, in your neighborhood, within your own families, it registers, doesn't it? It's one of those things where I think it maybe isn't the first characteristic or quality uh, that we would say, this is what I want to be about. And yet I would guess that each and every one of us, when we, when we see, when we experience humility in someone else, it stops us and we notice it, right? Today, we want to talk about that um, But again, it's a little bit hard to nail down. In the 7th and 8th century, uh, Charlemagne was the the ruler of the entire Holy Roman Empire. So uh, some of you that are history buffs buffs maybe know that a little bit. Uh, This is a picture of Charlemagne. Uh, um, But he basically ruled the entire populated world at that time or the the kind of... uh, um, the entire empire of where, where people kind of lived and things like that. So in, in the world, Charlemagne had no equal as far as his power, his money, his influence, all of those things. But guess what happened to Charlemagne sooner or later? He died. Yeah, right? Because the truth is, Death does not really care how big your bank account is, uh, how popular you are, the respect that you engender, or the country or nationalities that you rule over. Death just doesn't care. So Charlemagne, on some level, had the entire world at his feet and ruled over it. And yet, death came charging in and took his life just like anyone else. And so it was an interesting scene after the death of Charlemagne, because he had put in place some some protocols, and there were protocols in place if you were the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, that that people would would kind of venerate your name. So right, so after your death, there were protocols in place where where people would would sing of your praises, right, and and the things that you had done. Well, part of that was that Charlemagne was going to see one of the local bishops, right. I should say his body was going to be brought to one of the local bishops. And all the pomp and circumstance that went around Charlemagne's funeral, and there was tons of it, right? Um, It was all very carefully choreographed. This part of it was maybe the most interesting. 
Because the steward who was in charge of this entire thing uh, came to the bishop's door and they knocked on it. And the bishop responded with what was their traditional kind of response. Uh, he said to, it, to the person on the other side of the door, didn't open the door, said, who comes? Well, the attendant for Charlemagne, because remember, Charlemagne was a big deal, right? Uh, the attendant says to the man behind the door, uh, Charlemagne, king of the entire Roman Empire, emperor of the entire Roman Empire comes. Want to know what the answer was from the other side of the door? Him I know not. Okay? So now this steward who is in charge of this whole spectacular thing, right, is starting to get a little bit flustered. He's like, oh my goodness, like this was going really, really well until I showed up at the bishop's door, right? I said, him I know not. So the steward knocks again. Here's from the other side of the door. Who comes? Right? this point, he's scrambling a little bit. He says, uh, um, next one, he says, Charles the Great, a good and honest man of the earth. So he thinks, okay, I'm just going to tone it down a little bit, right? And then surely I'm going to get in. The response from the other side of the door, him I know not, right? So at this point, the steward who's in charge of this whole thing is really, really flustered. He's like, what is going on? Like, I, I can't even, I can't even bury Charlemagne at this point. So he knocks one last time and he hears the phrase, right? Who's there, right? Who comes? And this time he responds by saying this, Charles, a lowly sinner who begs the gift of Christ. The door opened. Right? It was a pretty good lesson for that steward, right? And those that were in attendance. What was necessary? What was required? Humility, right? A recognition of who Charlemagne was. That maybe the world sang his praises, but at the end of the day, he was a sinner in need of a Savior. Martin Luther, the 14th century reformer, had a wonderful phrase concerning that too. He said, our lives here as believers were simply beggars at the gate. Beggars at the gate of heaven, right? The joy we get is we get to tell other beggars where they can find spiritual food. So humility. Right? A recognition of who we are before our God above. Ultimately, that's what Jesus is talking about here today. This is one of my favorite definitions of humility from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. It says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself it's thinking of yourself less. I told you the concept and the trait of humility is a little bit slippery to get a hold of, right? But I think this is a good definition of it, right? It's not necessarily thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Thinking of those that are around you that God has put into your life. And so that's what we want to look at here today when we talk about how can we be humble in generally a haughty world. And I want to look at two different areas. Uh, we're going to look at attitude and action. Uh, uh, Jesus kind of demonstrates both of those in our parable from Luke here today. Um, that attitude ultimately always within the life of a believer leads to, to action. So you're welcome to follow along with me if you'd like. I'm going to begin with the very first verse of our text. Um, you can see it on the screen here. So. It says, One Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, 
He was being carefully watched. That was pretty common, especially as Jesus' ministry kind of went on. Uh, the, the intent of those who were in charge, who had power, who had significance, uh, the intent of the religious establishment around Jesus, as Jesus' popularity rose, their persecution rose equally. And so in our text here today, Jesus was carefully being watched. What were they watching him for? Well, any kind of infraction, right? Anything that they could label sin, anything that they could, they could hang on Jesus to somehow stop his popularity and keep those that were, that were coming to faith in him and following him from doing that. And so in this instance, the Pharisees were pretty bold. They invite Jesus into their house. They said, why don't you just come over? But it's not with good intent, right? Come on into my house. Look how gracious I am. Look at this spread that I put out in front of you, Jesus. Come on in. We just want to listen to you. We just want to hear about you. We just want to learn more about you and your ministry. And so what's fascinating in our lesson today is there was this this veneer of humility. But the truth is, there wasn't an ounce of humility in that building or in that house. They, they, They feigned humility, but the truth is, they weren't thinking about Jesus They were thinking about how to get rid of him. And so Christ knew exactly what he was getting himself into. And I think that's a really fascinating thing about Jesus. If you read through his ministry and his interactions with people, um, the first thing that we notice is that that he is indiscriminate in who he talks to. He is indiscriminate in who he eats with. The Pharisees oftentimes would say he dines with sinners. Right? He eats with tax collectors and prostitutes, those that would have been considered on the outside of respectable Israelite society. Jesus hung out with them, right? But what maybe is even more fascinating is Jesus always said yes to the invites from those that were on the inside. When Pharisees and Sadducees invited him to come over, what did Jesus do? He said, okay, I'll come. Because the truth is, he was indiscriminate in who he talked to and who needed to hear the message of forgiveness. But what's really interesting is, those whom Jesus was interacting with, the message was always the same, but the situation sometimes changed. And so in this instance, he knew the hearts of those that had invited him in for dinner. He knew that this was a, a trap in some sense. He knew what their intent was for him coming to that meal. But Jesus doesn't shy away from it. In fact, he steps right into it. Continue with our text. So we're we're talking first and foremost about attitude. It says this in verse 11 after telling them a parable. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Can you imagine being in that room, in that house? Dignitaries, Pharisees, Sadducees, wealthy people, right? People that had power and prominence within Jewish society. You're at a meal with all of those. (laughs) And Jesus tells a parable about pride and humility. Would you have liked to have been a fly on a wall during that meal? 
I, I, don't know, I don't know exactly what was going on in there, but I, I feel as though you could have heard a pin drop maybe after Jesus addressed them. Because he doesn't shy away from it at all. Right? Who is he talking about? The people that he's eating dinner with. When he talks about humility, right? When he talks about pride and arrogance, who is he talking about? The people that had invited him into their home. And so he does not shy away from putting his finger exactly on the sin and the pride that was in the hearts of those who were at that meal. I would guess you could have heard a pin drop, right? People kind of nervously shifting in their seats like, I think he's maybe talking about this guy, not me, right? But the truth is, he's not just talking about those Pharisees, those dignitaries that were in the meal. Truth is, Jesus at times is putting his finger on that sin in us as well. Because we know how easy that is, isn't it? I would say one of the... Let me back up. We are incredibly adept as human beings at shifting blame off of ourselves and onto others. Okay? We're incredibly adept at that. Right? Uh, kids will just do it. They'll just straight up say like he did it. Right? But as adults, we're a little more sophisticated, and so we become a little more, a little more uh, um, um, tricky at how we do that, but we, be, we, we just become more technical about it. We always are seeking to pra- pass blame away from ourselves. I think the biggest way that we do this is just through comparison. And to some degree, that's exactly what Jesus was addressing in the parable and in the text. It is so easy for us to compare ourselves to other people. And the truth is, we can always find somebody that is angrier than we are. We can always point out somebody that looks greedier than I am. We can always find somebody that treats their wife or their husband worse than I do. It's very easy for us to see another family, a mom or a dad, who are disciplining their kids, and we internally shake our heads and say, I would never do that. See, the truth is, it is not hard for us to look around. We seem to have an endless ability to find others that are worse than us. And what does it do? Well, it makes us feel a little bit better, doesn't it? And so we compare ourselves. But here's the amazing thing. We always seem to find someone that looks worse than us. But do we ever compare ourselves to those that maybe are doing things better? Rarely, right? Rarely. But I think that's how pride and ego moves. We can always find someone that's worse than us in order to puff ourselves up in a sense. But in that room with those Pharisees, what was Jesus' message to those men, you have no right, right? You're no better or worse than anyone else. Jesus was putting his finger on the spiritual problem that was infecting their hearts. And it's the same problem that infects our hearts as well. We always find someone that looks worse than us to make ourselves look better. The only trouble with that is it doesn't do any good, does it? Because if we're on just a little different pecking order, 
none of it is perfection, which is ultimately what our God above demands. So Luther's quote, at the end of the day, we're all beggars at the gate, sinful. On some level, that's exactly what Jesus was trying to get across to those Pharisees in that room. You are no better or worse, but the real beautiful message is you have a Savior, right? You have someone that was perfect for you. And in fact, in the case of our parable here today, he was eating dinner with them in that house, right? I think that's a message that we need to hear as well. There's a story I heard... Uh, one of my professors actually told it. I think it was kind of a fictional story about a, a seminary student. Uh, had gone all the way through college and then was at the seminary and gone through three years of, of seminary training and had, had written his sermons and was pretty proud of the two sermons that he wrote over the course of a year, right? And so he had practiced them uh, and, and he thought he had it all nailed down. And so this was going to be his first time to lead a congregation and to preach to them. And so, on some level, he was a little puffed up. And he walked up to the altar and his head was held high and he was doing noble work and he had worked really hard on this and his sermon was good and and he felt good about everything that he had in his hands and in his mind and in his heart as he walked up to that altar and he turned to face the congregation and he messed up. He forgot the opening confession of sins. He could hardly read the readings, even though they were in front of him on the page. All of a sudden, the the, the words started mixing and blurring in front of him, and he was stumbling more and more and more. Then he realized, oh, I still have to preach to these people. And so he started his sermon, which he was so proud of. He thought it was going to be so incredible, and it it just kind of devolved very quickly. And so he did what any smart person would do. He just said, the Lord bless you, amen, and left. (laughs) right? He walked off the altar and down, his head held down, um, kind of beaten down and broken. It was his first experience leading a congregation. After the service, one of the old timers, an elder, came up to him and said, um, and and just said, thank you for doing that, for delivering God's word to us. And he said, young man, can I give you a little advice? And the kid at this point was like, yeah, I'll take any advice that I can get. He said to him, if you had gone up the way you came down, you may have come down the way you went up. Okay? What was his point? It's humility, right? It's humility. The desire to serve, right? I think it's the same for us. But we ask ourselves, where does that quality of humility come from? Well, guess what? He was in the room eating with the Pharisees in our text today. And it's the very same thing for you, right? Ultimately, that humility, that desire to serve, it comes from Christ. It comes from knowing that you have been served, right? Not because he had to, not because he was forced to, but this was a a given service and humility. Christ laid down his life on the cross for you. His perfection is yours as a gift. You do not have to work at it. You do not have to have a certain position within society. You do not have to do anything. It is a pure gift of Christ. And so where does Christian humility come from? It comes from Jesus and His service. 
to you, his love to you, your forgiveness that you have in him. And so, like C.S. Lewis said, we can stop thinking of ourselves so much, right, and think of others, because that's exactly what Christ did as he laid down his life on the cross for us. And so humility begins with attitude, understanding who Christ is, what he's done for us, right? But the real amazing thing is, it always ends in action as well, right? Humility actually shows itself in how we treat the people around us. Continue with our text. Jesus says this, Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid, right? But when you give, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, they will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So Jesus compares two groups of people. And on some level, he was addressing what was the common practice within Israelite culture at that time. Uh, um, You would invite people to your home. You would ask them into your presence. You would would kind of feign this this, uh, um, intimacy. You'd have them into your house, but you had to make sure that you were going to get something out of it too. Was it respect? Was it honor? Uh, Was it going to change your status within community? Was it going to help you climb that ladder? That was pretty common. In fact, that's what everyone did. What does Jesus say to these Pharisees? He says, do the opposite. Now, that doesn't mean that you ought not ever invite your family and friends uh, and neighbors who happen to be wealthy, um, which are all of our neighbors, right? Maybe they think that about you, right? (laughs) Right? It's not that we don't invite them to our home, but Jesus' point, that we open up ourselves and our homes, not to those that we feel are worthy, but also to those that are not like us, right? That ultimately we are as indiscriminate in our love and in our service to the people around us as Christ was. That is how the attitude of humility turns into action. And actually, we have evidence all over Scripture of how God wants that to be action. Quite often, we use the, 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 the importance of love within our world, right? Christ talks to us about love as an action. That's how humility shows itself. Have you ever heard this statement that the measure of a society is often found in how they treat the very young and the very old. You ever heard that? And I think there's some truth to that. Uh, the measure, the character, the, the, the heart of a society can be measured by how they treat the very young and the very old. Put it another way, the heart of our society can be measured by how we treat those that cannot repay us. How we treat those that are... Uh, um, that are in need of being taken care of by others. How we treat those that can't necessarily produce in the same way that we appreciate, right? So how do you think we're doing? It's maybe questionable, right? But I think it's a good question for us to ask. And I don't necessarily know that that's a question we have to ask of the world in which we live. 
culture in which we live. But it ought to be a question that we ask of ourselves as believers, right? Of how we treat those around us. Not just those that can produce, that can, that can give back in ways that we appreciate, but how we treat life, all life, from conception to death, right? How we love the world and the people that God has brought into our life. That's humility in action. That's love in action, right? God gives us advice on that. 1 John 4.11, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another in action. Ephesians 4, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. This one does not want to behave. John 13, 14. There we go. 34, rather. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Right? And one last one. We love because he first loved us. This message that Christ put starkly in front of those and those Pharisees in that room is not one that should surprise us. You find it all over the pages of Scripture and you see it in Jesus' own ministry. And our motivation to put humility, not just the attitude, but also into action, ultimately it's Christ. Right? We love because we've been loved. We are able to be humble because of Christ's humility and his death on the cross. Pray the Lord blesses you in that as you live in a haughty world and show humility. Not only in attitude, but also in action. Amen.